Amazing. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Joy Schwartz, president of FinTech Nexus, and thrilled uh, to be moderating this session um, with Danielle and Jorge. Um, so just to kick us off, um, I wanted to kind of set the stage um, with a few really important data points for us to keep in mind before we dive into this discussion. So right now, more than 40 million Americans have a combined 1.6 trillion in federal student loan debt and more than 45 million borrowers placed their loans on hold during the pandemic. So on August 31st, loan repayments will go back into effect. Um, today, we're really gonna start to examine how these repayments will impact the entire ecosystem uh, and the implications not just for student lenders, um, but for all of us um, outside of the student lending space um, that are serving this industry. Um, and with that, I would love to invite Jorge, followed by Danny, to introduce themselves um, and kind of talk about their connection to the student real financing space. Hi, uh, my name is Jorge De Castro. I work for LendingTree. I am the SVP and general manager of our membership business. Um, we have about 22 million uh, members in our platform um, that span across the prime subprime and superprime um, credit spectrum. We are a financial inclusion and, and financial health platform for consumers. Our number one concern is understanding like not just the indebtedness of our consumers, but honestly helping them get to make um, better financial choices and, and progress. Uh, for me, this is a very big topic coming forward because in our previous lives, in 17 and 18, when we had other student loan forgiveness programs or pauses, we had great interest rate environment. And so it was rather easy for the consumer to get back into the swing of things. We're in a very different time now and we're looking at our customer base and trying to understand how they're gonna react, not just in terms of their indebtedness, but also in terms of their savings and what's there to come for them um, post Q3 into Q4. Hi everybody, my name is Danny. I'm the CEO and co-founder of RightFoot. Um, so my co-founder Deirdre and I started RightFoot while we were actually at our grad program at Stanford. And we had taken out a lot of student debt ourselves. So it was a problem that we were thinking a ton about. Um, and we didn't know, you know where to go to manage all of our debt. We couldn't see all of our debt in one place. Um, you know, we had multiple different servicers for our debt and they made it very unclear what our interest rates were and how we could optimize our payments back. And we realized that this was just a massive problem that so many other people faced. And when we look at, you know, why is it possible today that we can shout, hey Alexa, send me some DoorDash, we'll get some tacos in 10 minutes to show up at our door, but 80% of households in the US have consumer debt and it's something that they're thinking about all of the time and they have no idea where to go for help. So it was a problem that was near and dear to our heart and it's also something that really affects um, you know, every lender in this room as well. So when student loan repayments start, what does that mean for your own portfolio? And so we're excited to, to talk that through with you today. Uh, great setup, Danny. Um, so with that in mind, Jorge, the average borrower has $30,000 in student debt. What is the impact of this debt on the credit file? Well, on the credit file itself, it's always, it's always been there, you know, as long as they borrowed pre-pandemic, right? Um, the bigger question is, um, what has the pandemic done for their credit score and how are we going to look at them differently? 
um, by and large, we've seen that like the consumers that have gone into forbearance or pause, their credit scores actually floated up a little bit. And so it makes them um, seem like very appetizing in terms of a customer. The bigger problem is once that indebtedness is, is back and active, there's about $400 of repayment that's hitting them. When you think about that relative to their other debts, um, the average car loan is costing them somewhere around $400 to $600 a month on a used car. It's a big payment that's about to hit them again, and um, it's going to come like a splash of cold water to most consumers because they're not planning against it. Their behaviors will likely re revert back to pre-pandemic levels. We think that the credit scores will moderate. The biggest issue we have is how are they going to deal with that new debt on their balance sheet, and how exactly is that going to look um, as they're seeking more capital in the market? And I think related to that, and this is a topic that um, we touched upon as we were preparing for this conversation, um, understanding, you know, uh, rising interest rates are already impacting the current um, throughput and origination volumes. Um, and as you said, what does that mean to kind of future activities for these borrowers? Um, what do you think this added pressure from student loan repayments will do to originations? I think much of the same of what we're seeing right now, there's a lot of constrained credit in the marketplace, at least in the foreseeable future. Um, these consumers who might have looked a little bit better than prime or at the top end of the subprime market, it's going to be hard for them to find new credit. And what we're looking for as a platform to help them is to get them back into the behaviors of repaying. And it's never been more important for platforms like mine to really help nudge consumers to better behaviors so they can sustain the improvements that they've made during the pandemic on their credit. Beyond that, honestly, like we're trying to help consumers make better choices as they need to access more debt. There's so much costly debt out there right now. We've got to help the consumer really make a better choice so that they don't sink themselves into bigger problems, which in turn create more problems for us in getting them better debt. And so we've got to stop the cycle, especially as we're popping into a very different path. Now, Danny, um, this is something that you and I touched a great deal about, and I know, um, you know here we are in the financial inclusion track, really understanding which segments of the population are going to be most deeply impacted by the restart of student loan repayments, and, and what are the consequences? Yeah, um, so the reason why we started our company initially in the first place was because we learned that student debt is held, you know, two-thirds of all student debt is held by women. And that's because we make less, and it takes us longer to pay off that debt. And additionally, this was a shocking figure. Um, but we learned that families will save less for women as well. And we thought, what is this, the 1800s? Actually, no, uh, we're in 2023, but this is what's happening today. Um, you know, black students take out a disproportionately large burden of student debt, um, Latinx students as well. And so when you think about a person's ability to build wealth in the United States, to invest, to buy a home, these are all things that people are unable to do because they have this burden of debt. So as we look at the start of repayment of student loans again, what that means is that impact is going to disproportionately impact those same folks that we were just talking about. 
Yeah, and I think digging into that as well, one thing that we um, covered a little bit in our prep call is it's going to force people to prioritize. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, what are some of the kind of prioritizations that maybe you're anticipating and, and how um, that may impact some of our colleagues that, you know, are, um, you know, uh, you know, financing consumer loans and they're like, oh, I'm not involved in the student refinance space. I'm, it's not going to impact me. Yeah, I think if, if there's um, an institution that thinks that the start of student loan repayments is not going to impact them, we definitely have to unpack that, and we can do that on this panel. Um, but Jorge and I were even talking earlier, you know, uh, utilities payments, cell phone bills, those are things that tend to get paid first, even before credit card debt, student debt, auto loans, mortgage. Then when you look at, you know, the, the types of different debt that somebody has and how they prioritize, it's not actually how you think that it might happen. So, you know, what would be best for the borrower? Let's look at different, you know, strategies. Like, for example, let's pay off that highest interest debt first, things like that. Let's look at those uh, fees that are incurred from not paying that loan. What actually ends up happening, you know, even in the world of credit cards, people are paying where they have an affinity to. So if I have, let's say, a, a sports team-themed credit card, maybe I'm paying that off first because I like it, or I'm looking at the points that I have, things like that. Um, we even talked to a lot of different companies and collections who are seeing some interesting patterns with, hey, if I'm nicer to the person when I'm going through collections with them, they'll think about that in the future and perhaps they'll repay me first. And that's a real trend that we're seeing. And so when we look at, you know, how do these things stack up, student debt is now coming into the mix as one of those priorities that somebody has. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it's not sort of holistically a view that people will have um, about their own portfolio and the performance of that portfolio. That's really interesting. And one thing I never um, really thought about before is that whole psychology of who gets paid and why that you've kind of pressed upon. Definitely. It's something that, you know, is surprising to, you know, a lot of people, but when you think about it, you know, humans don't act rationally, and I think that's something to, to remember, you know, every time you're in this space and what you're thinking about, how is someone going to repay? What are they thinking about? What are the pains that are, you know, they're experiencing as a human being and on that level, and how does that impact, you know, what that means for the space? Yeah, and I think that goes as far as, you know, as, you know, especially the, the financial institutions and the, the lenders in the room, um, you know, if there are two, uh, you know, uh, lenders that are trying to collect on their loans and one just provides a more compassionate customer service, mm -hmm. uh, they may find that they're more likely to get paid first. Definitely. So, Jorge, uh, a few months ago, these very borrowers um, uh, that um, may now uh, be struggling as we kind of turn back on the, the loan repayments system um, were borrowers that many lenders were targeting. So, uh, what are your expectations of how um, our typical customer profiles are likely to change? I think they're going to, I think they change um, pretty much the way that um, they're previous to pandemic behaviors we're exposed to, not just on the credit file, but also attitudinally. Danielle mentioned like um, consumers tend to be a bit irrational, but they're very predictable. <laughs> like these behaviors are ingrained in them. And so when we start thinking about um, what are the profiles that we're looking at now in the new world, right? We're gonna be looking at other sources of information that help us really depict the consumer across their wallet, not just based off of their indebtedness. And so it begs the question, what other data do you need to really append and understand the consumer through? It can be everything from bank transaction data in terms of spend, all the way into 
you know, very specific income data that you can really depend on. From my standpoint, it's very important for me and, and my network of partners to really give a crisper picture of that consumer so that we can really self-select the better offers for that customer going forward and at the same time try and find better behaviors for that consumer. So what was typically you know, an affinity play that, that, that Danny just mentioned might be an affinity plus you know, credit health play. And it might be products that we really haven't thought of just yet. Products that actually um, push people into the profiles that we need them to for their own good as well as, frankly, for the, for the, for the good of our partners. Yeah, I think um, that's so relevant. And it kind of digs even deeper to kind of the, the moral question as to um, you know, how can we continue to leverage um, income and employment data to anticipate who's going to struggle and uh, provide better experiences for them? I think um, if you're a partner, if, if, if you're a company like mine that has a deep play in mortgage as well as deep plays in consumer debt, verified income is very important to our partners and we want to make sure that we nudge people closer and closer. Um, noticing that I'm on the Equifax stage right now, um, this has not been planted as a potential seed for Charlotte and the team. But I will tell you that there's a ton of value in getting as many sources um, of the income picture as you can, not just because we want to help the consumer um, get matched to a better offer, but more importantly, to really understand what the deeper picture is of that customer to make sure we help them appropriately. Um, Income and employment data is just one part of the picture, but it's a very important start. And as we get out of the current environment, not just from an interest rate perspective, but also from just a general cost of debt standpoint, it becomes more and more important to understand, like, is there sustainability between those employment records? Do, do they really um, reflect the true employment level of that, con that consumer? We need that, honestly, because our partners need it, but we're getting our platform to start reflecting the importance of that to our customers as well. So it becomes more of an ecosystem play than ever. It's not just about how much debt they have, it's about the means with which they have to pay that debt down. So just piggybacking on that for a second as well. So all the conversations that we've had today with lenders, you know, how they started out was, you know, we used to be focused on how many more people can we get through our systems? How many more originations can we have? And now it's all about how do I take my existing portfolio? How do I monitor that effectively? How do I proactively reach out if it looks like somebody's in a bad place and that might have to do with, hey, student debt is restarting. Let's figure out how this applies if I also know that they have student in debt. And so at RightFit, when we started out, we were really focused on how can we help streamline payments across all types of consumer debt. Um, but you know, the last year or so, we've really been seeing this demand from the market about how do you surface real-time credit data? How do you surface real-time banking data? Specifically, can you do that without a login? Because there's a lot of friction in that login. Um, so that's actually something that we've created and is also probably relevant to some folks in this group. Absolutely. Um, and you can see the Slido QR code is up. We'd love to hear your questions. Um, I'll kick off with one final question um, for Danny and Jorge, and then hopefully we'll get some engagement from the audience. Um, at the end of the day, uh, these borrowers took out these loans in an effort to improve their situations. How can we help customers stay on their feet? So this really pings at, at the 
strategic nature of our company specifically on the marketing side. The reality is um, all the fundamentals as to why these consumers took out debt all stay true. I think my experience in the past has taught me education is a very good proxy for sustainability of income over the long haul. Um, that creates a better opportunity to get into better debt, quite frankly. So those fundamentals stay. The problem is the near term. And so what, what in my world, building customer experiences um, for financial health um, used to be about proxying certain types of toolkits for certain people on the credit spectrum. Today, it's a little inverted. We've got to find better customer experiences that bring those subprime behaviors and make them nudge a little bit further into the prime space. That is not easy. It's, uh, Danny mentioned it, like the, the friction associated with getting people's permission um, to do things for them can be problematic. So we're trying to solve problems to make sure it's easier for consumers to try things. And then the other piece of it is, a lot of our subprime consumers that need the most help, they're actually the most time-starved as well. So we've got to get into more of an automating behavior sequence in customer experiences with the data that we have available to us versus expecting people to come do all this effort. At LendingTree, we've been working a lot on trying to figure out like not just what the easy button is in content, but activating it. And that's really where innovation is gonna pop through, I think. Yeah, so I think, you know, when we think about uh, bank institutions and how they used to form relationships with folks, we heard from a lot of institutions, hey, when they took out a mortgage for the first time, that's when we really formed that relationship. But now what we're seeing is people aren't taking out a mortgage because they have a ton of student debt. So the question is, how do we get earlier and earlier in the funnel, form that relationship, and solve the biggest problems that they have? You know, if, if you walk around, you know, even uh, a, a campus or if you walk around, um, you know, at a workplace, things like that, and you talk to people and you say, do you have student debt? Um, you know, the odds are that someone's going to say, yeah, of course. And, you know, I'm 50 and I'm still paying off my student debt. So this is something that affects so many people in the population. And it really affects, you know, to Jorge's point, how do you save for your goals? Like if I, ha if I want to buy a home eventually, but I've got student debt, and you know, I also have a lot of credit card debt. How do I prioritize that? What do I do? Um, you know, there is no easy button, but the hope is that we're creating an experience that makes this more manageable of a journey for an individual. Um, and not all debt is bad debt, so helping people run, really understand you know, what is that bad debt that you can tackle first, and how do I go from here? Yeah, and related to that, something that um, we've talked about before, but you don't realize the other consequences that people, you know, they're pro like they're putting off saving for retirement, um, they're putting off getting married and having children often, their inability to, as you mentioned, you know, purchase their first home. There's so many consequences, um, you know, that will only become more severe if we don't solve these problems. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got a minute here, um, so we're going to jump in and take one of our audience questions. Uh, do you have any estimates on what percent of customers in forbearance will not be returning to making payments in July? So it really depends. Some of the analysis that we've done on our own platform, as well as some of what we've heard from the Fed, um, it kind of varies on income levels. So people making less than $125,000, they have, uh, in surveys, um, sentiment around it seems anywhere between 30% um, of the populations in those lower income bands are likely not going to make their payments and try and go back into forbearance. Um, 
as you get to higher ranges of income, that really slims down. Like it's not disproportionately more. The reality is um, the last time this happened, there was an opportunity for consumers to get better debt even, even in that moment. In this, I think those numbers are gonna stick a little harder to the truth just because it's really hard to get access to more debt. It's, it's not gonna be favorable to them. And so I think consumers are gonna try and um, really depend on those forbearance programs or, or income repayment plans to keep them at least um, on track or whatever track they, they can get on. I've heard similar numbers to that as well. So you, the US government holds about 90% of all student debt. And I've heard you know, from, from folks there that if the US government was a, you know, a private lending institution, they would have probably about a 30% default rate. And that is quite high when you think about you know, what is the impact, what does that mean? Um, so it's very similar to your 30 to 40% um, you know, right there. I think also like will not be returning to payments. You could also think about um, are there folks who are just, you know, boycotting making a payment to student loans, which is something that, you know, what we've seen movements on Reddit, things like that. So there's a lot of different factors about, about why someone would or would not return to the repayment. It could be also they're qualifying for debt relief. Um, and, you know, obviously we'll, we'll, we'll see the outcome of uh, some of these lawsuits here. Um, but yes, so there's a lot of different reasons that play into that, but uh, definitely uh, on, the, on the mark on that number. Any more final questions? Sounds like we still have a lot more fun to have with this whole story, don't we? We do. Yeah. <laughs> so any more questions? Um, there's one additional question here we can, oh. we can try to tackle um, to wrap it up. If payroll data can be used to provide healthy cash flow customers with richer products, does that also mean poor cash flow consumers can be offered a worse product? It's an interesting question. I'm not a lender, so I can't necessarily speak to this piece. Um, but what I can share is that, um, you know, for the payroll products, I believe you do have to log in through a user experience. So I would imagine that one kind of outcome would be maybe folks who are not, you know, in the best position might not actually go forward to do that login. That's just one kind of thought off the top of my head here. Um, but Jorge, do you have any thoughts? I would. I mean. The question's a very solid one in terms of like, what's the value of payroll data? The reality is poor cash flow consumers um, are gonna get reviewed relative to their indebtedness and how they repay mm -hmm. regardless. And so um, I don't think that, I think the data helps paint the picture um, irrespective of their health. And what we wanna do is get a fuller picture of it so we put them in the right debt versus debt that they don't deserve, right? Um, and that they can't afford. Well, right. that's the question is like, how much can they really afford yeah. if they're so cash, right. cash flow poor? Yeah. I, I mean, typically cash flow is used a lot to try and make more positive, you know, decisions and taking that information in. But certainly that, that could be a, a process, right? Mm -hmm. It could be by looking at cash flow, realizing that the, the $100,000 loan you want isn't really something that you can afford. Right. So maybe put you in a... $10,000 loan instead, so that's definitely the byproduct. And at least our database is FCRA, so you can decline off of a mm -hmm. lack of, of income, although um, we, we highly recommend that they don't do that, so I think it just depends. But thank you all for the conversation today. Really appreciate it. Um, great, great conversation, and this concludes the financial inclusion and health track for the day, so 
um, enjoy. I know there's an after-hour party and um, <laughs> something else going on. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you.